you're just sitting there watching this giant shockwave coming toward you and you think, what the heck do we do now? It was just awesome. Quoting Larry Sullivan, one of the eyewitnesses that saw the sheer wrath of the explosions at the Pepcon facility nearby Henderson, Nevada on May 4th, 1988. Let's investigate. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I do not know which time you are listening to this podcast, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, welcome to Cataclysm. This is a podcast where we talk about the major blows that humanity has taken over the years. Today's disaster we'll be talking about is man-made. The Pipcon Explosions. And I, Ruben Swart, will be hosting this podcast. The goal of our podcast is for us to analyze and understand these disasters in an interesting way. For example, you can't make a 20 to 30 minute podcast about your sweater without mentioning that it came from a sheep. Thanks, sheep. Yikes, this thing is itchy. So, before we talk about our main catastrophe, we'll have to go back exactly two years, three months, and six days before the events at Pepcon occurred. The date that we go back to January 28th, 1986. The year just started, but it would be later known as a huge year in TV and film, sports, large events, and music. But it will also be known as a year with some spine-chilling and blood-coldening events that shocked the world. And January 28th, was one of those days. It was the day when seven astronauts were sadly killed. They were Francis Scobie, Michael Smith, Ronald McNair, Elson Onizuka, Greg Jarvis, Judith Resnick, and Krista McAuliffe. They were the crew of the doomed space shuttle Challenger. The flight would have been memorable. Millions were watching in front of their TVs as they saw NASA launched an enormous rocket into the air all the way into space. But the twist is, the ship never made it outside our atmosphere. It exploded. Here's why. The night before the launch, Temperatures dropped to minus 8 degrees Celsius. In America, that would be 18 degrees Fahrenheit. The company that developed the SRBs, or in other words, solid rocket boosters, Morton Thiokol Incorporated, warned NASA that the 
O-ring rubber that sealed the SRBs would fail under such temperatures. But NASA ignored the warnings, despite their own safety rules stating that they shouldn't have. NASA was too stubborn, too excited to even notice their safety precautions, their own safety precautions. Now, this is clearly a huge mistake, and they only noticed it the next morning. The following day, millions, maybe even billions, watched on their televisions, and some even watched in person, how this awesome rocket ship lifted itself into the air with power and just absolute spectacularity. Just 73 seconds afterwards, gas escaped uh, SRB and entered the shuttle's fuel tank. Though it appeared to explode the tank engulfed in large flames, a few seconds later the shuttle started to disintegrate and started to break up into smaller pieces that plunged into the ocean below. All seven crew members died. And in the Calamity's wake loomed a blanched white misshapen vertical cloud that was 14 kilometers tall. To put it in perspective, the tallest man-made building is 20 times shorter than that cloud. If you were there that morning, then you would have probably never seen anything taller than that cloud. It was so massive that it it seemed to peer down to the infinite amount of people staring at it on their TVs, or maybe they were there in person, and it gnarled down at them like death itself. It shocked the world that such a large and recognizable name such as NASA made a mistake, a catastrophic mistake. A mistake that costed seven people their innocent lives. NASA itself was also especially shocked at its own ignorance, and after the misfortune, NASA grounded its space shuttles for almost three years. The grounding left a lot of excess ammonium perchlorate, so, what is ammonium perchlorate, you might be asking? Well, here is the answer. Ammonium perchlorate, or simply AP, is a whitish powder that, when combined with fuel, can create a very powerful rocket propellant. And our two stories combine here because... PEPCON, the Pacific Engineering and Production Company of Nevada, was one of two AP producers in the U.S. at the time. 
the other one being Kermagee. And seeing that space shuttles use a lot of fuel, Pepcon supplied most of its AP towards NASA. But when NASA grounded its fleet, then Pepcon didn't have much to do with the large sums of excess AP. So, therefore, the US government ordered that the ammonium perchloride be stored in aluminum bins. The following 15 months after the Challenger disaster, Pepcon gathered more than 3.6 thousand tons of ammonium perchlorate. By this time, Pepcon was absolutely jam-packed with AP. It's a ridiculous amount, I mean, uh, 3.6 thousand tons, that's immense. Especially considering that AP is a wildly dangerous chemical. I mean, Pepcon was a huge facility, but it was almost like these pale green aluminum bins covered, uh, we can probably presume, about 50% of the ground area. I mean, you can see a, a, a square shape of these uh, bins, and it just goes on for hundreds of meters. But as with Challenger, the safety regulations at Pepcon weren't fantastic. There were even some reports that AP was just sprinkled on the ground at the facility and nobody was doing anything about it. Then the day came. It was May 4th, 1988. Uh, quite fine Wednesday. Clear skies. For most Pepcon employees it was a routine and insignificant day at first. But this would be a day that would be burnt into their memories. Two people will lose their lives on that day. And hundreds and hundreds will be badly injured. It all started when several workers were repairing a fiberglass structure following a windstorm. The workers were using a welding torch to fix up the steel frame. Around 11.30 a.m., a minuscule shard of metal blanketed in a bright orange rocketed towards a fiberglass structure. But instead of jumping and fading away like all the other sparks, this one's orange blanket madly expanded and started a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark, as they say. But the difference with this fire was that it started in a chemical plant that manufactured ammonium perchlorate, which is immensely explosive. And you know, when something like this starts, you know 
the outcome cannot be good. Shortly after the fire started, it grew out of control. It wasn't long until the conflagration reached the rocket fuel oxidizer. Millions of barrels filled with the stuff that lifted rockets to the Earth's moon would engulf in oddly colored flames. In fact, just ten minutes after the tiny spark flew, a mammoth explosion erupted out of nowhere. Dennis Todd was an engineer who worked on the nearby elevation known as Black Mountain. Todd had his video camera with him that Wednesday because he usually filmed his work process on top of the mountain. Then one of the employees saw thick smoke rising up from the valley. They saw that the Pacific Engineering and Production Company of Nevada was a blazing inferno. Dennis Todd then switched on his video camera and pointed it towards Pepcon. He would go on to take the best footage of the Pepcon disaster that we can watch today. But just before the facility exploded, the flames towering and blindingly radiant shone like the sun. It was like looking into a flashlight. A venomous black cloud arose like a skyscraper. Then, somewhere in those bright flames, something exploded. Something big. The Pepcon facility had no alarm system, which is absolutely ridiculous, considering that they have an extremely unpredictable product in superfluity. So the evacuation plan in case of emergency was run like crazy. The immense size of the explosion is, well, alarming to look at. It just went boom. It, it was just enormous. The Pepcon facility was huge but it was dwarfed by its very own destruction. That explosion was absolutely towering. It just went up into the sky, seemingly infinitely, and the blast was just so sudden and unexpected. You can't really even see where the blast began. One second it wasn't there, and the next it was. And this towering cloud that just rose up seemed very strange in this barren desert. Most explosions are surrounded by this industrial environment. And by barren, we meant barren. Like the desert went on and on with mountains and flats and more mountains and more flats. It just went on and on, and nothing was really interesting but this cloud. This black cloud of venom completely didn't fit in to its surroundings, and maybe that's what makes it so tantalizing. There were 
77 people at the facility that day, employees, workers. 75 of them escaped the wrath of the first explosion, but two didn't. The two fatalities were of Roy Westerfield, who stayed behind to call the fire department, and the other was Bruce Hawker, who was paraplegic and couldn't escape in time. I weirdly feel immense condolence for only two people, but not as much as, say, 2,000. Perhaps because it's easier to think of two funerals than thousands of them. Or maybe because you can read their names. It may be human generalization, but names paint the portrait of a person you've never met before. I suddenly see kids running down the hallway to see Uncle Roy after he's been gone for a while, or Mr. Hawker moving his arms back and forth, his wheels churning and him smiling affably, or maybe it's how they died. Mr. Westerfield died because he wanted to alert the professionals to kill the flames that could cause more damage. And sadly, Mr. Hawker practically didn't stand a chance. The first major explosion at Pepcon was most likely the assassin of these two wonderful people, but it wouldn't even be the largest thing to come out of the flames at the Pacific Engineering and Production Company of Nevada. At 11.57 a.m., four minutes after the first explosion, the largest and most devastating blast came. It was the result of the expanding fire reaching the storage area of shipping containers filled with ammonium perchlorate. The first explosion measured about a full 30 meters in diameter. The second was even more gigantic. It measured 3.5 on the Richter scale and consumed 1,500 tons of AP, four times the amount of a solid rocket booster is necessary to have. The power of the second explosion is also comparable to that of a one kiloton nuclear blast in free air. The kid marshmallow plant was so hard hit by the mighty shock wave that the entire factory caved in. You listening to this might have noticed something. You, you didn't mention a kid marshmallow plant before. Yes, I did not. Ironically, there was a marshmallow plant right next to Pepcon. It was called the Kid Marshmallow Plant. So, basically, there was a candy factory next to an ammonium perchloride factory. What a small world. Thankfully, all the Kid Marshmallow employees 
managed to escape the terrible explosions. But let's focus on the shock wave. The shock wave was immense, and it stood out on the tapes that you can see, specifically those by Dennis Todd we mentioned earlier. It almost seemed like one of those times when you drop a pebble into a genteel pond. That is what it looked like at the Pepcon facility. These shock waves did all the damage. And as I said earlier, the kid marshmallow plant next door was absolutely caved in. That was how powerful these shock waves were. After the second Titanic explosion, the flames started to subside. At 1 p.m., the badly damaged gas line that ran under the facility was shut down. With that, the flames died. The Pepcon and Kid Marshmallow facilities were absolutely extirpated. The facilities looked like dumps. It was just scraps of material lying around. Some steel frames were still in a somewhat organized form, but mostly it just looked like chaos. But if you thought that the facilities were the only places damaged, then you are painfully incorrect. The damage spanned a 16-kilometer radius. Within that radius was Henderson, a suburb of the gambling capital of the world. The town had around 60,000 people at the time. Enough people to be considered a small city. And in that growing suburb, windows were blasted, steel was twisted, and walls were cracked. And all in all, 375 people were badly injured. Here are some of the best eyewitness accounts of the Pepcon explosions. News anchor Gwen Castaldi said, It was a real moment of urgency and tragedy in the community. Henderson resident Rod McCarroll said, I know what the Japanese felt like in Hiroshima. It was that intense. He further states, I remember looking over my shoulder and seeing my office just annihilated. And running in the office and seeing my wife covered with glass. Larry Sullivan, who was part of the Henderson Fire Department, reports, I could see that toxic cloud, and that really bothered me because the cloud was blowing basically right towards us. We were have to kind of enter the cloud to get to where we had to go. I told my driver to stop about 1,200 feet from the plant, and as I was standing next to the ambulance and 
putting on my air tank, the first explosion came and blew me into the ambulance. He would later be blown into the ambulance again with the last explosion. With almost 400 people injured, the hospital was overwhelmed. Hospital administrator David Coates quoted, Most of the windows and glass in the hospital were blown out. And at the same time, we were having to respond to hundreds of people just streaming in from the community. Larry Sullivan, we mentioned earlier, said that they saw a lot of people had concussion injuries, kind of scratches, bruises, broken arms, eardrums, noses, things like that. Rob McCarroll also remembered the aftermath of the huge explosions in quite a vivid manner. He stated, As I drove into my neighborhood, there's no cars, no kids, there's no nothing. That scared me. And I'm going, where's my family? What's happened to my family? I look back on that, and my family's never hugged like we did that day. That quote just shows how something unexpected, something tragic can remind us of what is most important, the people we treasure, like our family, our friends, just any people you know, they're important to you, but usually we only realize that when something like Pepcon happens, a spark from a welding torch scarred a community. It was very significant, and even though people today don't remember it as well, the people of Henderson will always know what happened there in 1988. Dennis Todd filmed the whole spectacle from Black Mountain, and it is the closest I ever got to feeling the Pepcon disaster. I recommend you watch the footage. Since this is a podcast, well, you can't really see it here. The Pepcon disasters killed two people, injured hundreds, and cost almost $200 million in damage. You might think that a company like Pepcon might simply just shut down after such a massive error, but in fact, Pepcon didn't shut down. They just moved. To where did Pepcon move, you may ask? The answer is about 14 miles, or 23 kilometers, outside of Cedar City, Utah. It was chosen because the area surrounding the new Pepcon plant was less inhabited and more barren. 
And also, it wasn't too far away from Henderson, Nevada, so it wasn't one of those big moves. But shortly after the disaster happened, the news spread quickly around the world. And this made the United States government's ears perk up about chemical safety. And so they enforced laws to make the handling of ammonium perchlorate and similar elements more safe. Now, the blast in the desert wasn't one of the most deadly explosions in modern history, but it was definitely underestimated. Thousands of people didn't die, but it was certainly a day of mass chaos and hysteria for the people who lived through it. And it was a day that those people who lived through it will never forget. It is perhaps best put by assistant manager of Pepcon, Larry Cummings. He said, I can close my eyes right now and still picture the fireball of the last explosion. There is a multitude of reasons that I won't think I'll forget. May 4th, 1988, if I wanted to. Rest in peace, Roy Westerfield and Bruce Hawker, whose names I can read off. And thank you for listening to Cataclysm. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to Cataclysm on your favorite podcast hosting platform. It helps you in a way that is spectacular. You get notifications on new podcasts that we release. They will be fresh. They will be young. And most importantly, they will be current and unspoiled. Does that sound nice? Well, if it doesn't, then I don't know what does. So, subscribe. And if you think that your friends or family will like this podcast, then share it to them online, offline. Who cares? But if they can listen, then they can become part of a Cataclysm family, and you should too, if you haven't already subscribed, which I mentioned earlier, just subscribe. Remember that. Don't not subscribe. <clears throat> I might have lost my temper there, but seriously, do subscribe. It really helps us, and it helps you, so do it. And if you want to talk to us, then guess what? You can. You can talk with us through mail. Our email is cataclysm.pod at gmail.com. I repeat, cataclysm.pod at gmail.com. Therefore, you can talk to us just in general. You can also send us your suggestions for future episodes, 
or just say hi. So if you can do that, then it would be awesome. But you should remember, it's not just me making these podcasts. No, 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 no. I am just the writer and the host. We also have an editor. His name is... Henny Dreyer! Who is truly the modern-day king of editing. He's great at what he does, so think about him. But alas, the podcast can only go on for so long. Catch us next time when we talk about a death that shocked the world in 1980 and changed music history as we know it today. But from me, Ruben Swart, it is goodbye.